until we start looking at ourselves, deeply exploring ourselves, we're going to really struggle to come to a place of understanding with other individuals. Because I say that which you cannot see in yourself, you cannot readily see in others. That's right. That's right. If you can't see, if you can't see the darkness within yourself, if you're not willing to explore and embrace the darkness within yourself, it's going to be really hard to explore and embrace that with, with other people who are in the same place and in the same struggle. That's right. Until we can have self-compassion, until we can surrender, until we can have self-acceptance and recognize that we have shit, mm -hmm. we have been in the shithole. Mm -hmm. And now we need to do something about it to change our internal narrative. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at KarenGoldfingerBaker.com. My guest, Brian Post, is a maverick in the mental health field. He developed a dynamic theoretical model of human behavior, which he coined the stress model. When fully understood and applied to nearly any situation, this model can reveal underlying unconscious expressive states, which can transform relationship dynamics. Using the stress model theory, He's gone on to develop both family-centered regulatory parenting and regulatory therapy, which both have been taught at the university level, garnering post-international recognition. These rapid results programs have been changing the lives of struggling adults, parents, and families for the past several years. This conversation is full of fire and passion and commitment to going to the source of suffering for those affected by trauma and those around them. It's a hell of a ride. Get in and hang the hell on. You're in the Trauma Hiders Club. Brian, tell us about four-year-old Brian. Who was he? Well, Karen, I am very honored and grateful to be here with you on Trauma Hiders Club and with, with your listeners Four-year-old Brian, he was a wondrous kid, very sensitive. He had a sister who was probably his best pal. He had parents that were generally kind, generally attentive, generally nurturing. 
at four, I would I would say. We lived in a trailer house in a little town called Mountain View, Oklahoma. My best friend was Brandy Clark. She lived right across the street. She was also the reason I started stealing in the first grade. Mm-hmm. And it was a very small town. So I don't even know if my mom worked a lot then. We went to we went to daycare in, in, in the small little town. So I was a curious kid. I was curious. I was sensitive. Um, I was I was more or less a happy kid, though. Hmm. You mentioned Brandy and stealing. What, what was that? Brandy Clark was my first love. And I realized that in the first grade, I could buy her candy and she would love me even more. Mm. And and so I started stealing in the first grade and I would bring her candy. And one day her mom, Debbie, called me and I still know these these people. I mean, I've known them my whole life. Debbie called my mom and said, hey, it's great that Brian's given Brandy all the candy, but we took her to the dentist and she had like five cavities. Could you ask him not to provide candy to Brandy anymore? And so I got home from school. Mom said, hey, Debbie Clark called and said, you know, she she was it was nice of you to give Brandy all the candy, but Brandy has cavities, so don't give her any more candy. And by the way, where have you been getting money for candy? And of course, I made up some kind of story quickly. And uh, that was the end of that. It wasn't the end of my stealing, though, because stealing is an ex. It's just like every other addiction. It is an external attempt to soothe an internal state. Mm -hmm. And through the process of stealing, and eventually I met up my one of my best friends, childhood friends growing up. His, His name was Stephen Combs. He lived right behind me. I don't know what kind of stress he had going on in his home, but he was the youngest of of four siblings. And so he was a stressed out young man as well. So we got together and we were like bosom buddies. We would steal all the time. But stealing became a way to trigger dopamine Mm -hmm. and adrenaline and probably even at some level oxytocin for me to help with my anxiety. And I didn't realize it, of course, at that time. And, And obviously until much later, I remember that when I, I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12 years old, I went to the local pharmacy and um, I stole some cassette tapes. And as I was, I, I walked out, I had these three cassette tapes. I walked down the street and I just threw them on the ground. I don't think I even had a cassette player. Hmm. I just threw the tapes on the ground. And I remember that. And I remember the significance of that is because it wasn't about the tapes. It was about the feeling I got from from doing it. And it was actually a behavior that followed me for a long time, actually into uh, young adulthood. I mean, I think I finally I finally stopped stealing when I was like 19 or 20 years old. So by then I was at I was at risk for, you know, jail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was I get that creation of chaos, right? Mm. Because the right our set point our set point believes that chaos is normal. Well, sure. I don't want to use the norm. It's comfortable. We are comfortable with that internal chaos. What was the what was creating the the chaos in your life that brought you to want to stay at that level? I was adopted. Oh. I was adopted as an infant. So I was in foster care for I was in a, two different foster homes. And then I was adopted to my mom and dad. 
but I found out I've met finally met. I'm 49 years old now. I met my biological mother when I was 37. You know, luckily it was it was a good it was a good reunion. Most are not mine. Mine was a very good reunion, and so we were able to do some therapy together. And mm-hmm. I one of the things I asked her is to tell me about my my pregnancy and my birth because I all the families that I work with, this is a point of expiration because it defines us, our blueprints at such a, such an early stage. And she loved being pregnant with me um, up until the seventh month. And by the seventh month, she said she knew she wasn't going to be able to keep me. So she just had to forget that I was there. So that began the, the process of my trauma. Right. And I'm, I'm sure as a single mom, I had three older siblings. She was pretty stressed. She was actually married. Her husband lived in Germany and she didn't, she thought he had another family. He was in the military and she didn't think he was coming home. So she met my dad who was younger. But the problem is that my dad got her pregnant and then went right across town and got her cousin pregnant. So then she was, didn't want to have anything to do with him, but she said she did all the right things. She said she didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She ate lots of salmon. She exercised. And and I knew that. I, I knew that intuitively as a professional, that something in my early origin had been right I didn't know what it was until I met her and she explained it. And then that's, you know, that sets the foundation, you know, those that early wiring and then DNA. You know, I I came from from a mom, a biological mom who's when she was nine years old, her father murdered her mother and, you know, went on to have 20 kids and, and they celebrate him like it's nothing. And then I came from a biological father who he was 15. My grandfather fell seven stories off of a building to his death. And so then the next year, my father was in a residential treatment facility. So it, 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 that chaos is also in my DNA. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Right? Like you didn't know that. Yeah. You didn't know that. And there it is. Talk about, I mean, we, we talk about gen, intergenerational trauma. And typically, I think we go to a behavior repeating sure. itself that we can see. Yet for you, it was a genetic, right? Genetically wired. Research says now that that research, which yeah. is this is what we can see, right. can, can track trauma through the DNA for up to nine generations. That's just what we see. The reality is, is there's no separation. We energetically and vibrationally, we are this this floating vibration of connection and people talk about karma. They talk about past lives. It's just that there really is no distinction. Your conscious mind just doesn't hold on to those old experiences that just carry that continue to pass you forward and move you forward that you carry with you. Well, we focus on trauma because we can see it. The reason that's so limited is because you know, you talk about the trauma. My father that raised me was a Vietnam veteran. He was the child of an alcoholic. He had severe PTSD. My mom was the child of an alcoholic. Her father died in front of her from a heart attack when she was nine years old. So trauma is all around me. But what we don't consider is the trauma of our parents, the trauma that they lived. Therefore, the energy and the vibration and the frequency that they carried 
It's the unspoken. Alan Shore is a neuroscientist at UCLA. He says the core of the self is unconscious and nonverbal and lies in patterns of affect regulation. Affect regulation being the way that you manage stress. Well, 98% of communication is nonverbal. So the nonverbal experience which is vibrational, is transmitted and has so much more impact than anything that we actually experience. We experience painful things. We, we, we know them. We remember them. But that's just a fragment of all the trauma that we've been a part of through our vibration. And so almost like the first level of trauma is just being able to acknowledge that that you can see. But the other levels are to realize that energetically you are impacted by traumas that you don't see, yeah. that you you were traumatized, yes, but you were actually traumatized before you were traumatized. Right, right. It's like a trauma iceberg. Yes. Yes, right? Like if I'm on a mission to normalize a conversation around trauma, like I am recognizing that there is this teeny little peak and yet there's this whole, there's a whole universe that we are not looking at. A whole universe, yeah. because that iceberg consists of that ocean. Right. Right. And that, that iceberg has become a solid structure in the midst of that ocean. Yeah. So we're all a part of the ocean. We think about trauma and and the the, the impact of trauma, but it is it is so much bigger than we can wrap our brains around. It's so much bigger. And, and the first step is just the awareness, right? Most people are, because of how painful trauma is and how scary is, most people don't even want to acknowledge the tip of the iceberg. Right. If you don't, if, if you, if you're stuck at the tip of the iceberg, sister, you got a long <laughs> ways to go. Those are deep waters, deep, scary waters until you realize that there is nothing to be afraid of. Right. That's the work. That's the work. That's the work, man. Thank you for all of that. Who believed in you when you were a child? My mom believed in me. Hell yeah. My mom believed in me in a, in a radical way. She was a radical supporter. She was a radical advocate. The flip side of that is that she was mostly emotionally absent and unavailable. Hmm. But in the day-to-day, she was a staunch advocate for her children. Hmm. She was as much of a mother bear, and she still is. My father passed away 17 years ago. My mom's still still living, and she's still my biggest fan. She's still she's still a staunch advocate. You know, she's 73 years old, and she'd fight anyone, she'd fight anyone to the death. She was just that person. And you know, her mother who had a series of, of relationships with alcoholics, worked two and three jobs. So I know where, where that core of who she is comes from. Yeah. Who believed in you? Not that it's a contest or Olympics. Who believed in you more? You believing in you or your mom believing in you? You know, I think that it, it's a it's a trajectory, right? It's a it's a continuum. You have to have you have to have parents' belief to help form your own ability to to believe that you can believe, and and when you have that, it gives you a foundation. 
And at some point in our development, in our development, see, my dad was always really negative. I, I was I was an athlete. I always wanted to be an athlete. It's the only thing I wanted to be. But he was always really negative. But in adolescence, somewhere along the lines of genetics and environments of, of, of all the things, because my parents were always supportive. You know, you contrast that with all the violence I grew up in my home. They were always supportive. They anything I ever wanted to do, they either supported it wholeheartedly, they didn't say a thing about it and let me go off and run off and do it. They never tried to suppress anything that I did. And so my dad being all, you know, negative, it was just his, it was his paradigm. Mm -hmm. So in adolescence, I learned to change his negative to a positive. Uh So when he would say negative things, I would just flip that to a positive because the same man that was negative was on, on Friday. He was, he was running the chains of the football games on Friday night, every Friday night. And they followed me everywhere. You know, so there was that contrast, but also that context of knowing that unequivocally they supported and believed in me. And that, you know, I've really relied on that foundation throughout my throughout my life. Yeah. So nice. How did you learn to flip the script? I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I was just driven. I was driven. I always had goals. And I loved my dad and I respected him and I admired him. I admired him. I admired him more as an adult than I did as a child, but he was a hardworking man. And I just had goals for what it was that I wanted to accomplish. And I was unwilling to let anyone, anyone, dad, mom, friends, family stand in the way of those goals. I I just wasn't. And um, I think it's just a, a culmination, you know, genetically I had, I came from a family of, of entrepreneurs. So, you know, I have, I had some genetic strength there. You know, my, my life is contrasted, Karen, by my sister's life. My sister, who was also adopted, she was three months premature. She was exposed to alcohol. She spent her first three months in an incubator. She weighed three and a half pounds when she was born. My mom said, when we got you, you were smiling. When we got your sister, she was crying. And and all the violence in my life more or less surrounded around my sister. My sisters and my sister and my parents from the very beginning, they were like oil and water. They did not mix. And so, you know, my my family only knew whipping. We didn't get spankings. We got whipped. That's all that's all they knew. Um, so that's what would happen. You got whipping and yelling and all that kind of stuff. But for me, you know, I, I got my share of whippings and I actually had worse behaviors than my sister did. I was just smarter. So and not even not even cognitively smarter. I was socially and emotionally smarter than my sister. My sister was was socially and emotionally arrested. And so that was the big conflict between her and my parents is that they were hyper. They were parentified children. So they were hyper responsible because they were the oldest of sibling groups of nine and 10 Mm. with alcoholic parents, you know, so they had they had to take care of things. And that's what they did. My sister was immature. So it just conflicted. So I was smart enough to stop getting whippings by the time I was probably 10 or 11. And uh, my sister didn't. She she kept getting whippings up until she was 15. And by 15, it's no longer a whipping. It, it's called a fight. And then she decided to leave home. But from, from zero all the way up to 15, there was constant violence in my home, constant stress, constant yelling. I mean, I mean, I work with kids and families now, and I always work with families. The kids are all the one that always brings me into the home, but I always work with families and I always start with the parents. And in my experience of just my own life measured against 
you know, the families that I serve, it just gives me a paradigm of experience and understanding that most people don't have the opportunity to have. And if they do, they're too, sh they're too ashamed of it to, to be able to really accept it and embrace it and help, help other people learn and grow from it. And I always say about mental health, you know, the problem with mental health is that mental health professionals haven't spent enough time working on their own shit. Mm -hmm. they, they spend their, they go through these graduate school programs with these highly dysfunctional professors and the focus is all on the client and the client this and the client this and the client this. And there's no focus on the self. There's no focus on the individual. And that creates a broken system. And then what we do is we perpetuate that madness because it is a level of madness because stress only leads to more stress if you're unable to interrupt it by being aware of it, by acknowledging it, by breathing through it and calming down and, and moving into a space of love. Otherwise, stress just breeds more stress. So we have a completely stressed out mental health system. Some professional got upset with me not long ago. I was giving a lecture and I said the mental health system's insane. Mm. They do the same thing and they expect a different result. Einstein said that is the definition of insanity. You know, mental health professionals get pissed at me for saying that all the time. Well, you get pissed because it's the truth. Because you're doing the same shit that you were taught in graduate school, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it, it, it's not helping anyone. And so until we start looking at ourselves, deeply exploring ourselves, we're going to really struggle to come to a place of understanding with other individuals. Because I say that which you cannot see in yourself, you cannot readily see in others. That's right. That's right. If you can't see if you can't see the darkness within yourself, if you're not willing to explore and embrace the darkness within yourself, it's going to be really hard to explore and embrace that with with other people who are in the same place and in the same struggle. That's right. Until we can have self-compassion, until we can surrender, until we can have self-acceptance and recognize that we have shit. Mm -hmm. We have been in the shithole. Mm -hmm. And now we need to do something about it to change our internal narrative, right? Like that's what, that's what all of this is about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sitting in front of a man on Zoom who seems to me is called to do very heart-led, gut-led, truthy-ass work. Like, how did you sort that out? No, like, ah, I hear you. This is me. Well, I believe I was born to do what I do. Everything mm. that has ever happened in my life has perfectly aligned me to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm -hmm. I was on a journey and, and, and a part of that being born this way, you know, going through the trauma of adoption, going through the trauma of growing up in my home, wired me to not just take for face value what other people say. I've always had authority problems, always. I mean, after I got out of graduate school, I had six jobs in about six months because I just could not deal with bullshit. And who am I? I'm just a young kid, <laughs> but I could not handle, you know, in my mind, supervisors that were just, it didn't make sense what they were saying. So I just kept questioning, I kept asking, had all these different damn jobs. 
And then I I just be, became a learner. I was not always a learner because I didn't know what it meant. I was a football player. My first book I ever read was Out of Control by Thomas Hollywood Henderson. I completely fell in love with reading. And then I became a reader. Then I became a learner. Then I became a thinker. Mm-hmm. And then that planted the seeds as I moved into my career to keep wanting to learn and grow and to think. And because I did that, then I went on, I went on this, this mission, basically this, this hero's journey, if you will, of exploration and challenge and pain and suffering. And I eventually started having these breakthroughs like these, these moments, God would say these things to me after I would question like for three years, I questioned what creates attachment because that's kind of where I cut my teeth is is the the attachment field, attachment theory, and you know all that business. For three years, I asked the question, what leads to attachment? And one morning, I woke up. I was in Canada. It was raining, and the question popped in my head. And and then I went back to sleep. And I was driving that morning, and it was raining again. I was going over. I think it's called Kings Bridge in Vancouver, Canada. Big, huge bridge. And God tapped me on the head and said, stress. If you're stressed out, you cannot create attachment. Mm -hmm. If you stay in a state of stress, you cannot create attachment. No one in attachment was saying that. Everyone was focused on attachment and how this this amazing process. And I I had a mentor who who was brilliant. She was she was a genius. She was the top of the field. And, and I was I was like like right beside her for several years. But she didn't know that she didn't know that a stressed out child, no different than a stressed out parent, cannot form a secure attachment bond. She didn't know that. And so it became regulation. Unless you can unless you can achieve regulation. You cannot achieve attachment and bonding. And that's a a child and a parent thing. And the parents have to lead the process. This goes back to going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I want to circle back to if mental health professionals aren't willing to work on their own shit, guess what? They can't help anyone else work on their own shit. That's right. At the deepest level, they can't. They can only do cognitive stuff. Cognitive. But relationship and trauma and healing is emotional work. It is heart work. It is gut work. It's cellular work. It's energetic work. It's vibrational work. It's not thinking. Our thinking is a byproduct of our emotional being. And my my goodness. So, you know, I just just have years and years of questioning and challenging and then just growing into this work. And, And at some point, you know, you just get to a place in your own understanding where you feel like you find truth and truth doesn't mean it's the end of the game. It it really just becomes more self-reflection. Right. Right. That's all it becomes is more self-reflection. Yeah. And and more growth internally. And then you apply that as you go along with other people and you share it. But really the truth seeking, the books go away. I I don't want to read more books because the, the good books, the real books, they're just saying what I already believe and feel. So I just want to explore myself more and more and more and more and and be and become as much of a truth as I can within my being, fully accepting the dark side, the insanity of my own dark side. So I asked you how how you got there. It seems to me that you were practiced. And as you said, you were born right, like you were born this way. If you look at the journey of an athlete, right? It's 
work on your craft. It's work on your sport. It's get stronger. It's dig deeper. And even at the pinnacle, it's keep refining, keep right. Be a better kicker, throw further, run faster. I was 100% obsessed. Yep. And I started very early. So I started my first mental health practice when I was 25 years old. Mm. And at 25, I didn't even know what business was. But by 20, by 26, 27, I was being mentored by the top people in the game. And I, I read so many books. I studied so much. And so it, it was a journey. So I tell people, if you want to be successful at something, you have to be obsessed. And I'm, I'm still obsessed. I mean, I still work with families every single day. If I'm not working with families, I'm working with employees trying to just grow and get better. And, and just, I'm just obsessed. I'm just obsessed. And, and I feel like at some level, if you want, if you want to have significant impact, you do have to become obsessed about that thing. Yeah. I'm right there with you with the investments. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us about the stress model one and how that led you to develop family regulatory therapy and regulatory therapy Sure. At large. Yeah. So it was, it was like all things, a progression, but when God told me it was stress, then I realized that, that in that moment, that all behavior arises from a state of stress. So we look at attachment, you can look at attachment behavior as like the pinnacle or the, or the core of who we are as a being. Well, that's all based on our regulatory system. So underneath stress, inside of stress is regulation. You have to be, you have a stressful experience. You have to be able to regulate that. I just, it just snapped into place for me that, and, and again, I had a lot of mentors and, and I had a lot of learning. And so I grew up in the, I say grew up, I grew up professionally in the decade of the brain. Alan Shore and Alan Shroff and Daniel Goldman and Daniel Siegel and Bruce Perry, these luminaries in brain research and neuroscience and stress and attachment. And then Deepak Chopra, and it was actually Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer that filled in and, and I'll recite the stress model, the love and fear piece as the two primary emotions. Scientists don't talk about love and fear. Like they'll talk about fear. They sure aren't gonna talk about love. So it was Deepak who I had followed for 10 years who I was listening to an audio program and he started talking about the two primary, two primary emotions are, are love and fear. And I was like, oh my gosh, Another light bulb. And so the stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. It's through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that you calm the stress and diminish the behavior. So I would be lecturing and I'd have all these families, these parents coming up to me after these lectures asking me about these problem situations, these behavior challenging situations. When I discovered the stress model, the only thing I would do instead of listening to the behavior, because that's where most people get thrown off, because a parent starts starts defining a behavior, describing a behavior, what we are first invited into is to become stressed. The moment a parent tells me that their kid is pooping their pants, the moment a, a parent tells me that their kid is going into their sibling's room at night and sexually molesting them, the moment a parent tells me that their child is violent and is attacking them, what that statement does, what that vibration does, because it's coming from the parent's fear and stress, what it does is it invites me into fear and stress. So the first thing I have to do is I have to calm that within myself. When I calm that within myself, I'm no longer focused on the behavior. 
I'm only listening to the stress and the fear that's driving the behavior. So see, there's really two things. It's behavioral relationship. We're either focused on behaviors or we're focused on relationship. I just stopped being focused on behaviors and started being focused on relationship. And once I'd done that, once I would do that, parents started having breakthroughs. I mean, breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough, because now you just shifted paradigms. You're no longer focused on a behavior because the your amygdala gets focused on a behavior because your amygdala is your fear receptor. So when you see a behavior, your amygdala is like, ah. Oh. And I always say when, when your amygdala sees a behavior, the moment you try to control a thing, mm -hmm. suppress a thing, or change a thing. Now, now think about what mental health does when it comes to negative behaviors, things that we determine as negative. I have a, had a, a Canadian colleague who calls them symptoms. I think that's actually fantastic because their symptoms are not even behaviors. If we look at them as symptoms, it challenges us a little differently. But I always, I'm always, I'm kind of was oriented towards behavior. So behaviors, the moment the amygdala sees a behavior that's threatening, it wants to control it, suppress it, or change it. As soon as you want to control, suppress, and change, you're already operating from a, a place of stress. You're already stressed. And if that behavior is, is arising from a place of stress, guess what you're doing? You're creating more stress. You're basically putting gasoline on a fire. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's energetic. Yes. It's vibrational. Yes. It's vibrational. If you're behaving in a stress-driven way and I become stressed, it doesn't matter if I say, now, Karen, you need to calm down. Karen, that's not okay. Karen, let's stop this. Karen, that's all right. Karen, let's choose better words. Karen, let's do something different. I'm still stressed. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I, as you were saying that, I was imagining like getting wound tighter and tighter until I blow the until fuck up. Until someone explodes. Yes. yes. And then what happens is the brain reacts to stress in one of two, two different ways. It becomes hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused. Yeah. So it goes up or it goes down. So you get wound up tighter and tighter and tighter. Finally, you explode. After you explode, you go to shutdown. And then we just keep doing that. It's called a negative feedback loop. Yeah. A negative physiologic feedback loop. So the stress model was simply, very simply saying to people, the first challenge when you're facing a behavior is to calm yourself and move from your own fear to a place of love. Because as long as you're in a place of stress and fear, you are powerless to help the situation. You can only add to it. So you have to challenge yourself to breathe because that's the most powerful way to breathe in the presence of stress so you can calm your fear, acknowledge your fear, get more in dip, get more in touch with it. And then you can shift from a place of fear to a place of love. Now you're in a place of power with another individual. And then by doing that, I just help I just help parents start to stop looking at behaviors. Behaviors are just warning signs. They're just symptoms. Yeah. For stress and fear. So there's so much in parenting around like behavior modification, right? Yeah, listen to that word. Yeah. Behavior modification. Right. So what's the focus on? The focus is on the behavior. And right. guess what? The behavior is a is a manifestation of the stress and the fear. So yeah. as long as you're focusing on the behavior, you're focused on control, suppress, and change. As long as you're focused on behavior, now you're focused on diagnosis. Now you're focused on medication. And now you're into the pharmaceutical arena, right. which is financially driven, which has an investment in your behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. It's legalized drug dealing. Yeah. That like brings me to what do we do with addiction? Not 
not only do we not ask what happened to you, we control the behaviors, right? It's it's the same thing. Yeah, we, we, we have to empower in, in, in addiction, just like all, all trauma, we have to empower individuals to be able to grow into their awareness of their pain, of the root of their pain. Right. It's not the addiction. The addiction is just the behavior. Right. The addiction is a behavior that is driven by an earlier painful experience or lack of experience. And we have to empower individuals to dig deep into that and then teach them how to become mindful moment to moment, moment to moment mindfulness and paying attention to their dark side, which was also their protective side. The dark side grows because the dark side realized you had to survive. Yeah. So the dark side isn't even a dark side, right? Darth Vader was eventually Luke Skywalker's father. Right. I mean, it's, it's like the dark side is not the dark side. The dark side has as much light within it as the light side. It's just a matter of growing into the acceptance of the, and the awareness of what is without all the judgment and the guilt and the shame that gets bestowed upon it. And we teach people how to become mindful and, and then just to go through the process. There's no quick fix. Yeah. So I'm curious, what I know about you is that you have helped, I would guess at this point, more than a million people, right? They've read your books, they've watched your YouTube videos, they've heard you speak, done workshops, whatever. Are schools or are schools adopting a different paradigm? Schools are getting, they're, they're increasingly worsening. Yeah, because schools are are conventional systems. They're traditional systems. Traditional systems are are rooted in in cognitive behavioral psychology, and so and then you have you have individuals, human beings within those systems. Right. And we live in such a stressed out society right now. We're so freaking. We're traumatized. We're living in trauma. And no, so parents are traumatized and stressed. So so children are traumatized and stressed and they go to school and they have teachers that are traumatized and stressed. And, and they're not doing their, you know, some schools obviously make some changes and make some shifts. But I think you're just going to see more and more, more and more mindful, conscious parents that pull their kids out of schools because mm-hmm. they're going to just realize it's not worth it. Right, right. Because even if a parent is enlightened, right, understands that we have to look at this whole child and not a, not focus on behaviors, they go to school where everything is, right? Stand in the line, go to class at this time, hand in your home, all the things that are lighting the shit up that, at least for a kid like me, says, just like go act out and do all the wacko push back shit that you're going to do, right? I was not a kid who fit into this, although I looked like it. I couldn't help help it. it. Because trauma creates a stress-sensitive and fearful brain. That's what trauma creates. So then all the sensory stimulation that is occurring in school is now overwhelming the kid. And the kid has no option other to push back or to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was first molested, I was 10 and I have such a clear picture of winter through the, I guess, when school let out, looking through one particular window, that is pretty much what I did 
from then on. I looked out this window and I saw this sort of across the street from the school, these houses, and they had very like warm light. And I spent my entire fifth grade year imagining loving, safe, warm conversation and home life. Right. So like, that's where I was. And I was getting yelled at. I was getting yelled at in the classroom, like mm -hmm. I'm not turning in my homework. If we, I don't even remember that we had it, but yeah. And it continues to this day. That's right. That's yeah, right. I, I spend a lot of time also in schools, participating in IEP meetings. Mm. You know, I do a lot of consulting with schools and lectures at schools. And I can't tell you how many, just the other day, <laughs> Just the other day, we were having a special a special meeting for one of our one of our kids, and they started the meeting just talking about all the behavior problems, and they just kept talking about all the 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 instances and events and yada 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 yada. It went on and on and on, and I tried I wanted to interrupt, and the guy said you'll you'll have a chance to talk. So after they get through basically shaming shaming my client finally got around to me and I said, you all should be ashamed for starting a meeting in this manner with a kid who has an IEP, who's an individual education plan, which means this child basically has some kind of trauma without, without discussing the reason that he has an IEP plan to begin with. Mm. You should not be prefacing all of his behaviors first without taking into consideration his challenges and what he is, what he is bringing to the table and what he's struggling with. And number, number two, this was a big one. And, and his counselor was sitting next to me. She was kind of freaking out, but I don't care. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I, I'm, I'm tired. Because I'm you tired give a shit. Of these systems of care. I don't give a shit about their, their traditional ways of continuing to abuse and neglect children yeah. and disempower parents. And so I just said, and you and he is in trouble because he hit a kid on on a bus after after the kid got off. He hit the kid on the bus. He's in trouble for that. But no one got in trouble when this same group of peers was molesting him in the in out in the park. No one no one got in trouble then when he was shitting his pants for two years after that because he hadn't been able to tell anyone that he was being molested by these kids in his neighborhood. And now you want to punish him because he's going to fight back. Albeit he fought back with the wrong kid, but still, I don't care. Right. Fight back. Mm. And that's just the craziness of the system that we're in and that we subject our children to. That, we subject yeah. our children to crazy people in most instances. And, now, and I'll tell you, I had some amazing teachers. I had some amazing teachers and I, I love the teachers that I had, but I know that a lot of kids are, are men. They are, they are being railroaded and it is the most frustrating, saddening thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. So what's one thing we can do to bring awareness, whether it's at home or in school, I think it's really important to understand that fear and love are dance partners. How do we bring attention to that? It's very simple. We have to learn to breathe. Mm. 
in the presence of stress. And, and that requires us to grow in our awareness of what causes us stress mm. and to acknowledge and accept what causes us stress because we, we discount it in our society. Oh, that wasn't that bad. Oh, come on. You're all right. And so we grow our kids up always discounting them. Yeah. And we don't realize that just waking up sometimes is stressful. You know, falling asleep for some kids is stressful. They wake up, they have small windows of tolerance. We have to, we have to grow in our awareness as adults that when we are stressed, we have to learn to breathe. And when you are seeing signals of stress and behaviors are signals of stress, the first challenge is to breathe. And, and Herbert, Herbert Benson was a Harvard physiologist in the 70s. And he wrote the book, The Relaxation Response. It was after he had studied transcendental meditation. But the relaxation response basically said the first thing that we do when we're stressed is we stop breathing. And then we start taking really short and effective breaths. Well, fast forward 25 years, and Joseph Ledeau, a New York University neuroscientist, wrote the book called The Emotional Brain, said in times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed. We have to breathe. If we can't teach ourselves to breathe and to slow down, we can't get out of a place of stress and fear. We can't get out of an energy of stress and fear. Mm. We just can't do it. And so because we can't do it, our thinking stays confused and distorted and our short-term memory stays suppressed. Then we are we are literally holding ourselves hostage and everyone else. We are we are allowing our amygdalas to act as terrorists in our brains. They're hijacking us all the time and keeping us out of relationship. Because when you are stressed and when you're in a place of fear, your body constricts into survival, into self-protection, which means you can't be in relationship. That's right. And the universe is relationship. The universe is love. And when we are stressed, we are not in love. We are in fear. And you cannot be in relationship and be in fear. It is in, it's called insecurity. Right. Right. So that, I mean, it's simple. It's so simple. Yeah, it's so simple. Slow it's down so and simple, breathe. But it's so hard. It's so hard. So you have, it's repetition because there's only two yeah. things that change your brain. Repetition and emotional impact. Yeah. And that's what we also have to realize, Karen, is that healing anything, processing anything is actually going through a process of changing your brain. You are literally conducting brain surgery when you try to learn something new. And especially when you try to learn something new against the backdrop of something that happened to you 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. You're, you have got to rewire. You are literally rewiring your brain. And that's the hard part. Right. But it, it's it's hard, but it's also magical because you can begin the process within a moment. That's right. That's right. Within a moment, you can begin the process. Right. And if you just keep if you just keep that going, it changes. Once you see that, you start to notice how much harder it is to stay unwired than it is to rewire. Right. Because there's that the benefit. There's the return on the investment. Well, so what happens is the amygdala, the amygdala, your fear receptor doesn't forget a single pathway. Right. So if your amygdala learns to react a certain way in the face of trauma, it never forgets that. But what it can do is it can learn a new pathway over time. 
So what happens is when you go through the process of repetition and Bruce Perry says the brain always returns to the way the event was handled the last time. So when you make the effort, the brain stores that and the brain returns to it. Now, given the old pathway may be more powerful it may be may kick in over time. But if you'll keep trying, if you'll keep trying, that old pathway will eventually grass will grow over that old pathway and you'll start walking that new pathway. And that's when life starts to look different. Beautiful. Let me ask you this. Tell me what's been most helpful for you being here in the Trauma Hiders Club. Oh, yes. So it helps me to continue to step into my own confidence as a human being. Yeah. You know, to know that there are people like yourself who are on the same journey. Yes. That that we are travelers on the same road. And sometimes we step off and take different little pathways, but ultimately we're all travelers on the same road and, and relationship makes all things possible because love is the most powerful healing force in the universe. And so being here gets me to share my absolute passion, my passion for the journey and the process of healing trauma through stepping into love. And so thank you for that. That's what it, that's what it allows me. Beautiful. I love that you are here. I love that our listeners will hear from you, hear your passion, and ideally even shift, make a shift in their own life if they choose. Just breathe. Just, Just breathe, stop, man. Stop and Slow breathe. down and breathe. Yeah. That's it. Beautiful. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.